Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Alex Cowan will join us to discuss hypothesis-driven development. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, today's tech industry is fueled by billions of dollars, which are often wasted on unused software and digital products. How can we streamline this process and make it more hypothesis-driven? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Alex Cowan. Mr. Cowan started exploring money-making opportunities with computers at the age of 19. He's experienced in new ventures, entrepreneurial projects with established companies, and three successful exits as both a founder and investor. He's currently a professor at the prestigious Darden School of Business, and he has penned the new book, Hypothesis-Driven Development, A Guide to Smarter Product Management. Mr. Cowan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. Well, anybody who's looked out into the field and seen uh, useless products and wondering how these things get out there, uh, maybe there's a better way. Curious why you decided to put this book together. Well, mostly just massive undergrocking of science in business, Charles, and, and kind of a, the bad name that science and business has from early 19th century experiments and telling people how to shovel coal or, or what have you, where that's really the opposite of what we need today. We need people that are creative, can pair qualitative and quantitative evidence, and test new ideas. As, as innovation is on the lips and minds of every board member, every company, certainly every, every product person, you got to be able to go and apply a rigorous process to creating and testing new ideas. And I, I just thought that we've gotten a lot of good things from science. Why not use that? The boardrooms and the folks that are in charge of launching these products, it's not up to the data. It's more sort of up to an idea or a pitch. Yeah. People and organizations and habits change slowly. When I'm old, I, when I was in college in the 90s, just being able to get a piece of software working could take months and, and millions of dollars, and there weren't really that many teams that could do it. Th the situation just couldn't be more different now. Even before ChatGPT, the cost of releasing a 1.0 for most software projects was tiny, you know, e even compared to the startup capital you'd need for a typical small business, let alone a project inside a big company. And as a lot of the senior people are somewhat older, and that is part of their implicit set of assumptions, I think that that's a big reason why the practice of whatever you want to call it, but hypothesis-driven, experiment-driven, evidence-driven innovation, and crucially, being ready to test ideas with the idea that here's evidence that will let me be proved wrong or right, you know, instead of just validating my idea in the sense of like finding the evidence I want. That's new to a lot of people. But I think that it's, it's coming. The business is changing in ways that are massively advantaging the people that do it, which are both startups as well as these serial experimenters like Google and Amazon that are just incredibly disciplined about experimentation, both when they do big things as well as as they incrementally do new things. 
technology has made the barrier to entry for a lot of things just so low that you can throw a lot of stuff out there in the end. They don't even recoup that investment that you're putting into it. What's lost has been that hypothesis-driven development process, which uh, you espouse here. Yeah. I mean, there's two ways to make money in tech. One is to get lucky, which if you put enough things out there, you, you might get lucky. And the second one is just dogged determination and being ready to be wrong and, and try new things. And I, I think that the, the first way, I can't make anybody any luckier than anybody else, but I can make them better prepared to be wrong. And that's what I love about teaching this material in an MBA program is that it, it is not as simple as just blithely saying, hey, use a more scientific process to test your ideas. It's a social part of that, an emotional part of that, an economic part of it, a, an interdisciplinary approach is of how to actually make this happen in real life in a real company. It, it is multifaceted. How do you describe hypothesis-driven development? What sort of methods do you suggest that they approach in terms of the development of products? Well, kind of think about teams having a product pipeline where certain priorities go into the pipeline and then certain release software comes out of it. And what do the teams do in between those two things? That, that matters a lot. And in a hypothesis-driven approach, rather than uh, how do we go from idea to design? Well, for example, rather than just blindly going out and releasing something, we find ways to test it with users and, and test demand. And for example, that, that it's probably a lot of uh, listeners have heard of the lean startup. And this is the basic idea is there are ways to test your ideas without actually building the whole product. So for example, if your idea is to build a dating app for the elderly, then you can go and do a little bit of matchmaking to learn how that process works. You can launch a site where people can sign up and you can just see if there's interest or not. These proxies work pretty well for testing demand. Um, and there's a lot of great case studies that are available of, of how to do this and a lot of evidence that it really does work. The other thing you can do even before that is go out and talk to subjects, talk to customers or, or people who are proxies for the customer you hope you'll have you can ask them what's on their A-list. One of my favorite examples is from a, a friend and collaborator of mine, Laura Klein. She has this vignette of a job board for people to hire out their pets for work. So it's clearly a bad idea, at least at the moment. Their pets don't, and they can't you know, build a house or do your books for you. Most people are just happy to have their pet. And so a really great question to ask is, okay, let's say I'm going to test job for pets. What's the earliest, cheapest, quickest way that I would, I would be able to test this idea and say, okay, I can tell from the evidence that this is a bad idea. And it's probably as simple as going out and talking to five or six pet owners, asking them, hey, what are the top three hardest things about having a pet? And then observing that you never hear, I wish I could give my pet more jobs. And if you launched a AdWords campaign where people are searching for things that are pet related, for example, on Google, and you post up ads, hey, here's a job board for pets, and nobody clicks through, you know, that's more expensive, that takes more time, but that would tell you that too. Of course, you could go and you could build this product and you could find out the hard way that nobody wants it, but that's kind of the big revolution on the design side is, is that everything kind of leading up to coding is the realization that we don't have to test with real working product. In fact, that's the most expensive way to test a new idea and, and there are a lot of better alternatives. As much as I want my cat to start earning her keep, I think she's not going to, so. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good assumption, I think. Yeah, plausible. 
Again, in science, you do these pilot studies to test out the bigger idea. And so this is really trying to implement that kind of process or, or, or experimentation in a way in, in the business process. It is. And I, I think that people think that science, I, mean, I think there's just so much misunderstanding about science in general. And, and that's one of the impediments to applying in a business. People think science is, I mean, implicitly, I think some people just think that science is whatever scientist says. But of course, science is a process and it doesn't have to do with, you know, just pouring liquids together. It has to do, ask any practicing scientist, how do you get a great experimental result? And I think that what they'll tell you is, come into your experiment with a really well thought out hypothesis based on observations about how things work and that that feels plausible, but that you're ready to be proven wrong about because that's what science does. And that's the best way to do things. So the idea that somehow applying science in business has to do with just doing everything by the numbers or taking the human element out of it, it just couldn't be further from the truth. It is the best way that I've found to help individuals, general managers, let's say, as we call them in the business school world, just managers, product managers, CEOs, founders, whatever, go out and, and really do a good job of pairing qualitative and quantitative evidence to round out the, the way that they test for new ideas and that they, they ultimately get to wins. Because that's the best way to make money in, in innovation. Like I said, you can't be any luckier than anybody else. But with a contemporary set of methods, you can test five ideas in the space that you would only be able to test one idea with a traditional approach. And you know, if you assume all ideas are roughly as likely to succeed, that, that I mean, it sounds like hard work and it is, but it is actually a very reliable way to improve your hit rate on, on good ideas, whether that's a new product or a new feature on an existing product. Boils down to a little bit of the culture of the business. How do you get the leaders and engineers all to play together? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I think that my lead advice is always just go do it. Don't ask for permission. But, you know, I've also been fired for insubordination from jobs. So I, I don't, you know, I think the MBAs have better intuition about that than I do. I think that the top thing to know your audience, of course, because every we, we stereotype engineers, we stereotype business people, and we stereotype CEOs. But of course, they're all, they're all really different. They have different concerns. They have different things that are on their A-list. So the number one thing I always tell the MBAs is go find out what they think, because they probably have some pretty, I mean, even if they are not as familiar with this more contemporary set of methods, they're not an idiot. You know, they have certain concerns that have real reasons, real antecedents, and you need to understand what those are. You can't just go and say, the old way is bad, this new way is better, unfortunately. You know, that's just not way, none of us like to hear things put to us that way. So I think know your audience, and then whether it's aligning with a senior management or kind of middleman, your, your sort of middle management, I think the best single thing you can do is just ask a question. You, know, you come up with an idea and you ask this one question. How could we test that? How could we see if that's right so that we don't create waste? That's a good way to get started in a really simple way. Uh, are there good examples of companies out there that have gone with this approach and uh, achieved significant success? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, gosh. My last company that I sold in 2015, we, we built four products. Three of them were... Uh, on the basis of things that customers had asked us to, to help them with on the consulting side. And so we sort of knew what the job was. We knew who did it. And, and then one of the products that we built of the four was because I was sure it was a good idea. And guess which one turned out to be the failure? I'm sure yours was a great idea, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was an analytics product. And, and some of the assumptions were right. Some of the assumptions were, were were wrong. I mean, there was a real job there, but the the customers really wanted us 
to do it for them. They didn't want a piece of software to do it themselves. So you know, just there's so many things that can go right and so many things that can go wrong with any given idea um, that, that it just makes it, uh, it, you know, it just pays off so much better to go out and test things, even though the, the job of, t- I mean, part of the problem is that when you go and you bring management a test result of, uh, hey, we tested this idea and we found out it's a bad idea. Well, you know, if they're not experienced in these kind of methods, it just doesn't show very well. It doesn't show as well as a plan or a prototype or something, but by starting small and, and doing this over time, you, you can sort of build up to getting wins. That's one example from from my company in 2015. I mean, eight, you know, epochs ago in, in the, the pace that, that technology and the business practices of technology have evolved. But I think if you also, if you look at a Google versus Bing is a classic example. And there's great quotes out there from the former Bing people about just how Google just out experimented them, you know, especially in Bing's early days. And, and it wasn't just that there was some kind of magic single thing about Google search being better than Bing and Bing not being able to make up that market share. It was ongoing diligence, constantly experimenting and adapting and what the what they were learning from users and the data they were getting that accrued to a really, really compelling product that just was so much better than the alternatives. Convincing them about the data and, and making sure that this is a process that everyone buys into. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I you know I had to do that all the time at my last company. I mean, we, we were a small software company selling products to big telecommunications companies. So, you know, they, especially big customer asked me for something. It's hard and really, but for most times, impossible to just tell them no. And yet some of those ideas, they weren't, they were bad per se, but they were bad ideas for our product. And what I learned how to do was to say, hey, they, you know, let, let's, for example, say they come and they, they say, well, we think the product's great, but we want to make everything red. And this hyperbolic, not a real example. Then the, the, the kind of thing that I would, I would ask them is, okay, I, you know, clearly I can't start with a no. I, I start with a yes. And I say, tell me more. Okay, let's tell me more about how this red should work. You know, what is it that we're, how will we know if the red is working? What are we trying to have happen? Not because I'm trying to argue with them or disagree, but just because I'm like, hey, if you want red, let's make sure that it's a win. And that's a really good way that I've found to lean into what people want. And especially when, in point of fact, you do want them to get what they want ultimately. And, and but to get them involved in the process of testing it and maybe rethinking um, what they want out of the idea. Um, but if you don't kind of co-create that with them, then it is very hard for all the reasons that you mentioned. But and then that approach is not, it doesn't automatically work just like anything that's from one person to another, let alone things that are between many people. It's it's complicated. Sometimes it works better than others. But I mean, I just thank my lucky stars that I sort of figured out to do that in the middle of running my last company, for example. How do you see the future of product management evolving? What skills do you think leaders are going to need to succeed? The landscape keeps changing. Uh, it's a good question. I, I, I think that they, more than anything, they need creative confidence. And they, they need the realization that so many things about the way that we teach business and the way that we conduct it are based on building a chicken feed factory to sell chicken feed into a very well understood, very predictable market. Whereas the things that companies really need to do right now are just not like that. They're different. They're not completely different. I I think, again, that's why I like teaching uh, in this MBA program. I think that the management fundamentals that you learn about how to communicate with people, how to 
understand finance and understand economics and how do things work operationally at a company. Those are all still relevant, but they get done in a very different way. And so right now, there's an enormous amount of fuss out there about what's the real right way to do product management? And you know, is it is it something that only people at Google do or only people that work at Airbnb do? And I, and I think that the, uh, the answer is good product management is just the same as good management. You take a product or a service and you go and you, you make a bunch of money with it. You've done a good job. On the one hand, it's no more complicated than that. On the other hand, digital product is something where you got to be ready to experiment and take advantage of the way that digital does afford experimentation and the way that GPT and generative AI have created massive tailwinds behind that. For example, I teach a coding class at Darden, but it's, these aren't, these aren't going to be coders, these, these MBAs, that's not their intention, but they need to understand the process, for example, of going from design to code. And Truth be told, I have not found a good way to teach that other than to give them the experience of actually doing that with you know, going from a design and, and testing it and iteratively testing it and developing it. And I think that just going and, and tinkering with those things, reading my book perhaps or taking a class, but mostly uh, the main thing that matters is, is applied practice because most of these skills are relatively easy to understand but hard to practice, unlike, say, learning calculus for the first time. And so the, the most important thing, whether this is something that you tinker with in a side project or you do at work or you take a course, you read a book, is just to start practicing the idea of how would I take an idea and how would I test it? And, and that's the thing that matters the most. And I haven't seen anybody start doing that in earnest and, and not learn a lot and, and not get relatively comfortable with the practice of doing this relatively quickly. Maybe to close, do you have any final words uh, regarding your book, Hypothesis-Driven Development? Well, if you are interested in doing some of these things and you read it and you want to give it a try, I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear how it goes. I think we're all learning about this together. We were just speaking with Mr. Alex Cowan. His new book, Hypothesis-Driven Development, A Guide to Smarter Product Management. Mr. Cowan, thank you so much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.